the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Starting Saturday, 11th of September, Season 2 of Author Question Time on Ross Jeffrey's YouTube channel. Join Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Ross Jeffrey alongside co-hosts T.C. Parker and Kev Harrison as they discuss books, writing and creativity with huge names in horror and dark fiction like Josh Malaman and Alan Baxter, alongside some of the most exciting new voices on the indie scene such as Eric LaRocca, Hayley Piper and Laurel Hightower. Come, bring your questions, join in the conversation. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Just want to remind you to check out our good friend, Michael David Wilson from This Is Horror. He's got a writing and editing consultation service. Two people that he has worked with worth noting, Josh Malman and David Moody. For more information on that, go to michaeldavidwilson.co.uk slash editing. In Twisted Chains of Tales, Splatterpunk Award-nominated author Janine Pipe delivers urban legends, supernatural stories and a few surprises. Mixing flash fiction and short tales, you can be sure this book is twisted and perfect for Halloween. Featuring a forward by Glenn Rolfe and clubs from Brian Keane, Hunter Shea and Tim Meyer. Available on Amazon. Thank you. And welcome to Dead Headspace, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead. We re-exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and today I am 
flying solo. Brennan could unfortunately not make it today, but he will be back next week. Today I'm talking to the author of Shelter for the Damned, a damn good book, Darkest Hours, and Pale Back and See, Mike Thorne. Say hi, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, man. So let's just dive into it. What got you into horror? Um, for whatever reason, I, I was always just kind of drawn to the dark and the grotesque. I'm not sure where exactly that came from. I suspect it, um, to some extent it came from the fact that I always felt a little bit out of place, a little bit weird, maybe even a little bit alienated. And I think horror um, offered me a kind of escape hatch that felt right. Um, and it kind of started with drawing, I guess, drawing and, and, and also my interest in writing horror started with my interest in reading horror. So as a kid, I was mm-hmm. reading, you know, like many, uh, other kids of my generation, R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. And then I upgraded to Stephen King around the age of 12 and, uh, there was no turning back. Alice Cooper and Rob Zombie too were big kind <laughs> of horror figures in my, in my adolescence that got me into it. So, yeah. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? 31. Okay, yeah, we're the pretty much the same age. I, I turned 33 uh, in two or three months, so yeah, 90s kids. Man, yeah. we grew up with some cool shit. Like, we grew, we were the last generation. I don't know if you think about this, but I think about this shit all the time. Last generation to experience life before we had uh, really social media to what it is today. We had it, but like when we were a little bit older, um, mm-hmm. MySpace was not anything like Twitter and all this shit, but it's weird because the world, all the the internet changed the world. Social media changed the world, and I, we're obviously never going back. So we got to experience growing up what it's like to just, you know, want to hang out with your friends. Okay, that's cool, but, like, it, it's never going to be the same. So it, I think with that being said, it kind of gives – us is weird advantage to the next generation of this type of horror like the type that because if you want to write isolation i mean you don't have cell phones or whatever's after that um Mm -hmm. so you write about the 90s or before that and we lived through it so this is my long about way of asking you is um is that something that you kind of want to write a whole lot about uh, like in Shelter of the Dam, you never listed, you never said when it took place, but uh, that that's a, I believe, a contemporary timeline. Well, the the final published version, we included a page at the beginning that says Suburban Somewhere 2003. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's it. Yep. So it would be kind of like the suburbs that you and I would remember from when yeah. we were around the age of those boys. Um, and that was not something I initially included in the manuscript, but um, I had some discussions with the folks at Journalstone uh, close to publication, and I said, would it be a good idea maybe to orient the reader? I deliberately ambiguated a lot of things about the book. I definitely wanted to ambiguate the place, and I, I deliberately said it in the summer, so it, again, made it more kind of anonymous that this was suburban somewhere. But I realized, yeah, like you, you're saying, we were the last generation like i remember life before the internet even um yeah right it's like and and uh i often ask my students how many of you remember life before the internet and unless there are older students in the room like none of them um they grew up with 
social media and all these other things, I, I have no idea what that does to cognition and like development, but um, yeah, you're right. That's like a radically different way to grow up, you know? Yeah. My son is almost two. And I'm just thinking like he, I mean, before as a parent, I was like, yeah, I'm going to limit his tablet time and all that shit. But then you have him and you're fucking tired. My wife and I were full-time jobs. I mean, we love our son, but a lot of work when you're very, very tired. So we're just like, fuck it. He's going to have that. And it calms him down because we try other things. I don't know what my parents or your parents did, but like they take to smartphones and such so quick. And when I grew up, man, my dad said, if you don't know a word, here's my volume, uh, my volumes of the dictionary. Look that word up. You know, Google was around, but it's nothing like it was back then and uh i mean you had to really think about it you got dictionary apps and such but it's so weird to think about i love writing about that stuff yeah no you're right it's fascinating to think about and that really is like it fundamentally reshapes i think the way someone moves through the world it's interesting what you just brought up about you know looking up a word or looks looking something up in the thesaurus i imagine now if kids were to speculate about things as kids do one of them is probably usually likely to pull out their phones and find an answer and that takes away some element of curiosity and exploration i would think that comes with childhood just imagining what the answer might be imagining different possibilities yeah, that and patience. Um, not yes. not trying to make a blanket statement, but like N64, PS2 for video games, big fan of those. Uh, PC games, I was big in Half-Life and the mod games like Counter-Strike and such that was uh, kind of spiraled off of Half-Life. But those and the predecessors, um, they they had cartridges. Um, they... <laughs> They didn't always work. The levels were a lot longer. Some of them, there was a time when there was no save point. And uh, for a lot of video games, like the original Ninja, Ninja, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for the NES, that thing is fucking hard. Um, That kind of teaches you this built-in patience that, like, nowadays, you can receive anything. Anything from anywhere in the world, essentially. And it's... Again, very weird to think about. Like, I read this uh, years ago. I read, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Walter Isaacson. He's a biographer, and he did a lot of neat books. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin. Steve Jobs was the first one I read by him. And uh, Mm. talks about when he went to India in the 70s. He goes back to India in the yachts with his family. Says it's completely different. The difference was is basically culturally and all that. Uh, you know, sociologically and stuff, uh, it just it felt different. You knew you were in India. Sure, there's there's landmarks and such that in the 2000s you could tell you're in India, but it feels like you're in any place in the world. Everything is so connected that we're kind of all the same everywhere. And that's another element that's very strange to think about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and there, I thought um, uh, an avenue you might be going with with that reflection, which is a really interesting one, um, is something aligned with uh, something I witnessed a few years ago when I was in London and I was at the National Gallery. 
Um, there were swarms of people rather than looking at the paintings. And this is going to sound really judgmental, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but it struck me as strange. But a lot of people were looking at the paintings through their phones, or they would um, snap a selfie with the painting and then walk away without really spending time with it. And to me, that that's kind of like it's a refraction or it's um, it's a kind of distancing from actually engaging with the art. Um, or it's at least a way of engaging with the art very differently. Um, and I just found it so alien, like really weird. You know? it is, it's super weird. Like, yeah, people take, I do it myself, take selfies all the time and you don't kind of, course. you don't absorb the present. Um, I'd like to jump into Shelter for the Dan. Uh, when you get, you sent us, I wish I could have read all three, but to keep up with all my guests, it's not very easy. But I read Shelter for the Damned, and that that's a really good book. And the few things made me pick that one over the others, the cover and the fact that you have a blurb from Jeffrey Riddick and that first final destination, man, that <laughs> that fucking rocks. Uh, how, I got to ask before we go into the book, how did you get a blurb from him? Um, Jeffrey and I connected through Twitter originally, and we just kind of became friends. Um, Very cool. Yeah, and Jeffrey is um, one of the sweetest and most generous um, people in the horror world. Both he and Jamie Blanks, uh, the director of Urban Legend and Valentine, these are people I like look up to and, you know, grew up with their work and to now be like friends with them feels surreal and they're both just again very generous very um supportive just kind down-to-earth people um so yeah getting jeffrey's blurb on uh shelter for the damned was like fucking surreal for me um, <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah i mean yeah that that's a classic film um i love final destination so and it, i think in a way final destination is probably one of the influences on Shelter for the Damned, the kind of angst of that film and the the sense of these adolescents who have death hanging over them, or there's a kind of, um, yeah, there, there's a kind of heaviness to that film and a seriousness to that film that's, um, of course, it, it also has the, the self-referential aspects that many um, slasher films in the wake of Scream would include but i think it's one of the one of the smartest and most innovative of that wave um and the way it deals with death in particular i think probably unconsciously inspired shelter in some ways i can see that now that you're talking about it and maybe i should have made that connection so for final destination that was that fucked with me on a totally different wavelength than it would for like i liked screen i was big in a scream i love wes craven being mm-hmm. into Michael Myers and, and John Carpenter films. But, like, Final Destination does something so different because it's a visible force. But, like, here's the thing. You, you've you probably read a million books about God and, and the devil or death. I'm just picking things that you've read so many different stories on. But when it's done right with what you did, with what Final Destination did with death, um, it's terrifying. And I liked Shelter really early on but then there was just this trigger and i'm like holy shit this guy's it was smart it was very smart uh smartly written because it wasn't really in your face it kind of felt like it's like consuming good vodka it tastes smooth it goes down 
so much so that you drink so much you don't know how fucked up you are until you stand up and you're like god damn i'm in it too far i'm not bullshitting you man and then what do i say without ruining it because i don't want to spoil anything let's see if i can kind of make sense with the precipice of what mark does Mm -hmm. i think is the best way to word it when mark hits his peak with holy shit is this real or is this not Mm -hmm. Is this in his head or whatever? Um, I was in. I, I was in before that, but like I was so in, I was like, uh, kind of, I got to keep reading this because I don't know what's going to happen. And then I read the whole thing. Man, I, I hope you write more stories in that world because I'm, 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 hind- my speech is hindering right now because I don't want to spoil anything. It's hard to, I really want to tell you a few things, but it's, it's going to spoil a few few things okay shelter let's talk about the shelter itself um the cover nails it it's creepy it's uh it's kind of got some claude barker elements in there too it feels like um i'm gonna shut the hell up about this because i don't know what to say without ruining (laughs) it but it's a fucking good book so why don't you tell us what you can about it well thank you so much i really appreciate that um yeah, Shelter for the Damned. Um, it's my. It was my first novel. I actually wrote it before um, any of the material in Darkest Hours, um, although it was published um, after the initial release of Darkest Hours. Um, it started out as kind of an experimental novel. Um, I wrote it almost as like an epic prose poem with almost no punctuation. And I had these sequences where the shack was being built out of slashes and commas. I kind of wanted to do this meta text thing like the book was the shack. I don't think it entirely worked. Um, And I had um, a very, yeah, I had a helpful writing advisor during my undergrad who kind of asked me like why I was writing it in this highly unconventional way. And the best answer I could come up with was because I love Hubert Selby Jr. who, who writes um, in, in an unconventional way, he kind of spills his voices into each other. He doesn't use po- quotation marks or even periods, really. Um, certainly not apostrophes. Um, and, and that's not a great answer uh, because I'm not Hubert Selby Jr. So, But Hubert Selby Jr. was, was an influence in terms of um, the pain in his books, the way he writes um, intimate depictions of people who do seem... It's, it seems like a religiously laden word, but damned in some way. Like no matter what they do, they're just slipping. Um, mm. and, and, and sometimes it's difficult to identify why. It's a series of internal and external factors often. Um, but yeah, again, I was reading a lot of Selby Jr., um, a lot of Jim Thompson, a crime uh, novelist. So not really genre writers, but is interested in the way these guys align with... Um, really complicated, morally ambiguous protagonists who we don't necessarily like all the time. Um, and I, I, I thought it would be kind of fascinating to write a coming-of-age novel with someone like that at the center. And then I just drew on my obsession with, with horror, so pulling on you know people like Barker and King and Lovecraft and Poe. So I, 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 when I'm writing, I often like to kind of collide things together that you wouldn't necessarily customarily assume would work and then just seeing what happens so it's like cosmic horror coming of age um morally compromised protagonist uh suburban malaise and angst addiction and uh yeah so uh, 
there's I guess there were a lot of different elements that came together and and it's it's I think it's an angry novel it's a kind of sad novel I think it's it, it expresses the point of view of someone entering into his 20s and feeling like this alienation he felt in his teen years is still lingering and he's still feeling kind of hopeless so I think the book has that in it too um to some degree I agree. Oh, it absolutely. It's very morbid. Um, and it's brutal as hell. So I want to go back to you talked about your influences for this book in particular. And uh, I really like it's, you know, it's really more than OK. if People just talk about horror writers. But I really like when they kind of go outside the box. And um, I want to hear your thoughts on especially the fact that you're a teacher. Uh, what, what are you a teacher of exactly? Because it sounded like it's something that there's a range of age groups. Yeah. So in the past, I've taught, um, I started by teaching grammar workshops at undergrad. Um, and then I taught um, introduction to literary analysis, English composition. And I taught a couple sections of an intro communications course for a while. Um, and then I've done some TAing, so TAing for detective fiction, Shakespeare. Um, right now I'm doing an introduction to short fiction, but the ones where I was an instructor of record were lit analysis and um, and composition. So, it, what would your advice be to them for if they want to be a writer, right? And uh, this is pretty much a generic question, I would think, for an interviewer, but I'm going to ask anyways. What would your advice be to them? Because I feel like you kind of have an unconventional approach, and I do not mean that in a negative way. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I guess my big thing, and it kind of touches on what you said, is do not box yourself in. So even if you want to write science fiction or fantasy or horror, certainly familiarize yourself with the the legacies and the traditions um, and and the um, the work that has been done before you and the work that is happening now, but also read widely, read from different time periods, read across genres, read fiction and nonfiction, read quote unquote highbrow and quote unquote lowbrow fiction, read poetry. Uh, read philosophy. Just devour as much reading as you can, because reading is a part of writing. Um, so I, I, I feel like I can't stress that enough. And I really agree with you. It's 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 great for horror writers to be enthusiastic about horror, and I think we should like know and respect our genre. But um, God, you, you're you're leaving you're leaving out so much if you only read horror, right? <laughs> um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Victor Laval pointed out that it. Uh, he replied to one of my tweets about poets. He said that you want to learn basically how to structure and where you should break apart a paragraph. Read good poets. Yes. I, I want to know if you got any thoughts on that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, um, and actually, I feel like I learned a lot about writing um, by starting with poetry in my early 20s. So before mm. Shelter for the Damned. A friend of mine and I co-wrote a collection of poetry that we self-published. Thankfully, there weren't a ton of copies because I, I think there's probably some good stuff in there, but it probably needs a lot of editing. Um, but one of the things we did is we wrote these things called fugues. We called them fugues. It's like the mental state and also the musical composition term where we would split a piece of paper into disordered sections. 
So one might be near the bottom of the page and two might be like on the other side and we would take turns. I would write one, he would write two and we would collaborate on poems um, and getting just a sense of, uh, I guess, yeah, what you can do with the page and just having fun a little bit uh, as well was was useful for me, but also reading a lot of poetry and getting to know that form. I think, yeah, Victor Laval is absolutely right in terms of thinking about uh, the structure um, and the, uh, I guess also like the, the, the function of every word in your writing, thinking about the utility of every word, um, that's a good place to go. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm going to jump to, we can talk about shelter as much as you want, but I'm going to jump to uh, one more of your influences, Kathy Koja. Uh, what is it about her? Because you talk about her a lot, and she's awesome. Uh, Brian, I love her. But what is it about Kathy that you like so much? Her prose style was the first thing that stood out to me. Nobody writes a sentence like Kathy Koja. But it's, it's not just um, style. It's always... Um, conducive to the content. She has this incredibly complex and sophisticated way of braiding subject um, and form and content and form. Um, and I think the way she, again, kind of conveys intense forms of subjectivity with her prose. So these kind of freewheeling um, form bending sentences to convey states of arousal, fear, disgust, um, depression, anxiety. It's like no one else. It's so immersive. And she writes about, um, I feel like, uh, complicated relationships better than anyone else. There's a kind of terrifying intimacy to a lot of her work. I'm thinking about like novels like Skin, Strange Angels. I even just read um, uh, one of her YA novels, who's uh, The Blue Mirror. I, think I haven't read the- that. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about skin because I'm going to that's a book I'm going to read. Uh, we're having her on just for spotlights because when we had her on last this year, last year, I don't know, whatever it was. Uh, she was talking about how she's like, oh, I come back next time and uh, do a reading for Dr. Seuss. At that point, Brandon and I hadn't. the We didn't encourage reading um, for the full episodes like this one. So we created spotlights because we want to hear people do readings. And Kathy said she wants to do a reading on about like a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> so she's doing that. Uh, the, I think the first Monday early on next month. Um, yeah. As soon as I thought of her, man, like dude, how often you talk about her? I was like, yeah, I think Mike, like he might like this, but she can read anything. And I agree. Like she's fun. We were, we had her on for two and a half hours. I'm not exaggerating. We could have had her on for four or five hours, and she's one of those people like just keep going and going. Her her personality matches her writing too. So I want to get back to Skin though because I haven't read that yet. I got it in my audio book that I'm gonna tackle uh, in a week or so. What is it? <laughs> sell it to me and sell. I'm already I already bought it, but sell it to me and sell it to potential readers if you don't mind because I would love to hear your your talk about it. Well, I love anytime Kathy writes about um, performance or art, and she she often writes about them in a very intensely somatic way. So art and performance as housed within the body and as a bodily experience. It's it's a really um, it's one of her more erotic novels. It's it's sort of 
brings um, eroticism into body horror, I, I think, in new ways, in really mm -hmm. exciting ways. Um, and also, again, one of the best examples of Kathy writing uh, complex human relationships. And I guess before I forget, I'll mention uh, Kathy is going to be doing the virtual launch of Peel Back and See With Me on November 3rd through Very books. cool. Yeah, so we can link that if, if folks are interested. It's it's going to be her and me, which is, uh, I'm again, I'm just reeling. I, she's literally my favorite living writer. Um, she's awesome. a, yeah, she's an absolute hero of me of mine. Um, I, I put her up there with the very best. I think she's like an absolute master. I know the Cypher is a really big one. Uh, that's probably her most notorious one, and that came out in the early 90s. Yeah, game changer. Um, yeah, so remind me about the link so I can get that and add to the show notes. But uh, let's get back to you, man. So I was real curious. Why did you pick Mike instead of Michael for your, for your author name? Um, the truth is I, uh, I did some acting during uh, this is really embarrassing and I hope people can't find anything. But during <laughs> high school, I had a I, that was actually the original career path I wanted to go down. Yeah. And I acted in like some really small, small scale films directed by my friend. And I always went by Mike in those and I just stuck with it. I was like, <laughs> I did it then. So no real thought behind it. Um, I don't know. Does Michael Thorne sound cooler? I don't know. I got no, like, you know what? That's funny though. Um, when I was living in Massachusetts, there was going to be a Hollywood East studio. So like Hollywood, but in Massachusetts, Plymouth, Mass. And there was this one guy that was connected to it that was teaching. Um, I don't want to be an actor. I love guys like Quint. Like, I'm not built for that shit. Like, maybe a small role or whatever. That's fine. But I like the behind-the-scenes stuff. Quint Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Romero, Wes Craven. Like, I, those are guys that I'm, like, hooked on to. Um, so I just remember we were going through like this is how this is how a commercial audition would be this is what you should expect this is terminology, and then he'd record us and we'd watch it, and uh, he said, "Pat, you're not smiling at all, and it looks like you're kind of like getting ready to be sentenced to prison." And I was like, <laughs> "I said I thought it was weird because in my mind I thought I was smiling, but you're right. I look like I'm ready to kill someone." <laughs> It's a weird experience. Like actors is a, that's a whole nother ball game, man. Yeah. And I don't like looking back on, I'm like, how the hell was that? Like, was that me? I'm so anxious and I'm so introverted. And I used to act in the school plays and stuff. It seems almost like kind of boggles my mind. I don't really understand that, but. Did you write back then in high school? I did. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've been writing for as long as I can remember, really. Um, I think in high school was when I kind of deviated more toward poetry or around, yeah, my mid-teens to my early 20s, most of the writing I did was poetry. Um, but I, I wrote a lot of genre stuff uh, throughout my childhood. I wrote fantasy and sci-fi and lots and lots of horror, um, really, really gruesome horror that concerned my Catholic school teachers. So. <laughs> That's uh, that was my that was my jam. I that's funny. So um, yeah. So I can't believe Sheltered was your first book that you wrote because Slattery Falls was Brennan's first book, and you two motherfuckers got it right the first time. And oh, I've written over ten books, and none of them are published for a reason. 
I'm envious of you guys. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> well, thank you. Actually, I did. I've talked about this before, but I did write a very, very bad novel as a kid called Long Ago, which was a ripoff of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars in equal measures. And characters would just disappear. And it was just basically battle scene after battle scene. So <laughs> maybe that was my training ground. And that will never be published. So, yeah. But that's kind of you to say thank you. I always feel like I'm trying to learn something from book to book. So I think there are things I learned while writing Shelter that made their way into Darkest Hours um, and Peel Back and See. They're, they're really chronological. Like, I think there's one story in Peel Back and See that I wrote during the period that I wrote Darkest Hours, but the rest is like afterward. They've, they've all been very sequential in that way. So. So Darkest Hour has an extended edition. Um, how far apart were those released from each other? The original version of Darkest Hours came out in 2017, and then the expanded edition was this year, 2021. Um, it's been an absolutely bonkers year. I have three books coming out in 2021, <laughs> and I just started my PhD, and I'm uh, kind of, uh, it, it, it's a good kind of overwhelmed, but it's, it's a little overwhelming. Um, yeah, so it's been a busy, busy year. PhD's a full-time job, I can imagine. Uh, my wife got her master's in social work, and oh, cool. I know how much work she had to put in. So PhD, I can't even imagine. It's uh, it's it's intense, yeah. And I'm I'm taking one more course than I should be in my first semester because there were a few courses I didn't want to miss out on. I'm taking a prose writing course. I'm taking a screenwriting course. And I'm taking a theory course on the art of failure. Um, you're only supposed to take two, but I didn't want to miss any of those. Um, so, you and I'm TAing. I didn't want to fit. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I can learn the art of failure myself. I will set myself up for failure, and I'll learn about failure firsthand because <laughs> God knows I haven't learned enough about failure already. Uh, so why not keep keep at that? Yeah, you're just trying to figure out the right way to do it. Um, one other thing worth noting. Is that Spanish? There's a Spanish translation. I can't talk. There is a Spanish translation coming out for Shelter of the Dam, Shelter for the Dam. My apologies, and um, that's really neat, man. That's a big deal. Spanish is one of the biggest languages in the world. So, yeah, how did that come about? Because that's exciting as hell. Yeah, I'm thrilled about that. Um, I guess this uh, this press Dilatando Mentes um, has worked with Journal Stone before. So they got in touch with Journal Stone and said they were interested in translating Shelter. Um, Journal Stone asked my agent and me, and I said, absolutely, that's amazing, super exciting. Uh, yeah, and it comes out in 2022. So there will be a version of my book that I cannot understand. All the more reason to learn to read Spanish so I can read my own book. That's really neat. Yeah, that's very uh, cool. Do you know... Do you know if it's it, it's going to be just the sort of deal where it's online on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all that? Or do you know if they're going to be sending it to any like Spanish based stores or Spanish speaking country stores? I don't know. No, not not off the top of my head. That's all stuff I could probably find out. But um I'm not I never sure. thought to ask that. I mean, because like I see some authors have German, Italian, Russian translations and I'm just curious if what does that mean? I'm sure it differs from publisher to publisher, but um, that, yeah, man, that, that's really cool. And then there was a, 
You know what? We were listening off. People have blurbed you. There's someone that I want to know if you also uh, talk with Trevor Henderson. He is known best known for Siren Head. Um, I didn't know if you guys had a friendship there. Yeah. So, well, and actually, Trevor did the cover art for Shelter for the Damned. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I originally I, I had been a fan of Trevor's art for a while, but he publicly he tweeted about um, his enjoyment of Dark Souls. So that so the blurb in Dark Souls is his tweet. Um, mm. <laughs> he, he had like a thread of books he was reading and he, uh, I guess, really liked Darkest Hours. And I was like, oh, this is so cool because I've always been drawn to his artwork. Um, and then. When things were rolling with uh, Shelter for the Damned, Journalstone is amazing uh, in terms of working with their authors. They, they often ask, like, did you have anything in mind for the cover? Did you have any specific artists in mind? So for all of my books, I've been I'm really grateful. I've been very involved in terms of conceptualizing what the books will look like. And he was the first name that came to mind. And they said, sure. So and he was such a joy to work with. So like accommodating and, and hardworking and brilliant like he's so fucking talented uh yeah siren head is like that and congrats man that's really neat uh siren head is kind of like one of those characters like slender man i won't be surprised if there's more stories a novel or two in a movie based off of that guy eventually absolutely i mean trevor henderson's imagination is too big to be contained it's like it's it's gonna make its way elsewhere he's his yeah just his images i'm like how do you keep coming up with these amazing and i feel like there's so part of what drew me to his art and why i thought he would be an interesting person for shelter um there's an element of i feel like nostalgia like monster movie nostalgia but also something genuinely unsettling about a lot of these images and again the way he brings together those two affects that you wouldn't think would work together um i thought that that's perfect for this book so yeah man you know what just look at the artwork that some people do like uh you know regular listener um alex mcveigh he's he's incredible i mean i'd say that even if i didn't know the guy he is fantastic him then uh I'm playing Lynn Hansen. Oh my goodness. I love her too, man. Her artwork is unreal. Um, Don Noble, Keelan Patrick Burke, even Todd Kieslin has some uh, good artwork. He did this logo for the show. <laughs> um, oh, cool. Todd's great. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you remember what the logo looks like, but it's specifically supposed to look like a zombie from George Romero's uh, Dawn of the Dead. And I didn't give him that, like, hey, make it look like this type of zombie but then he did them like i fucking love that movie i love that dude R- romero his work like i like oh, the yeah. later zombie stuff but dawn and day of the dead those two yeah. movies <laughs> they're out of this world um i know you work with carmen uh for the tv film side of things is there anything that you can talk about experiencing that side of the world because that's something that you know i i would like to just write i'm sure you would too but that the bottom line is that ain't how the world works nowadays so it's important i feel like to ask questions like this for even myself 
for Brennan, for other writers that have not reached that point, but are thinking about it. The earlier thing about that stuff, I would think the better. But is there anything that you can advise people or any comments that you want to talk about how that's been so far? Yeah, I can do my very best. I mean, I most of my interactions with Carmen have been kind of preliminary. Um, the film development stuff I've done has has kind of so far been without agents. Hopefully, if something moves ahead, you know, I, I mean, now I have um, I have representation, so that's huge. But um, yeah, a, a lot of stuff is just serendipitous. So like. Um, even um, signing on with Stacy Conla with the Rights Factory as my literary agent, um, very serendipitous. I, I, she was an old friend of mine who had since become a literary agent. Uh, I ended up talking to her after the initial contract for Darkest Hours ended, and was kind of just picking her brain. I was like, "Hey, I, I you know, you're a friend of mine. You work in the industry. Do you have any ideas?" and Eventually, she's like, hey, maybe I should represent you. And I said, <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. That's cool. cool. You, can't, that, you can't play on that. No, no. Yeah. So exactly. And same thing with like any movie related stuff that's come up. It's just been serendipitous, just like making connections with people. And um, they happen to uh, my work, I guess, speaks to them. And, and that's an incredible thing that I'm really grateful for. And these are people, you know, that I'm beyond thrilled and honored to have that correspondence with. So I guess the biggest suggestion I can make is like, be nice to people, try to support other people, try to avoid the the really poisonous undercurrents of social media that encourage us to um, engage in outrage and binary based thinking and um, just toxic shit. I think, you know, like, obviously, I am an extremely pessimistic person, but I think my pessimism informs my view of social media. I'm like, this shit is so dangerous if we misuse it. And we've already seen that. So if we're going to have to deal with this stuff in the world, let's be conscious about how we're doing it. And, and also just like out of compassion. Um, so yeah, I think if you're just like, you know, communicating with other people in, in the industry and keeping your head down and doing the work and, promoting to the best of your ability, hopefully stuff will happen. Um, I, I, I wish I had like clearer no, suggestions. Great. Yeah, I hope that's, that's really good. Okay, cool. that's really good because, uh, you know, social media, especially starting out, um, you can get lost in shit real quick because a lot of people I've noticed something and I don't know if I've said this publicly. I got no damn uh, qualms about saying this publicly. I won't tweet about it because I'm not looking to start trouble, but um, I've noticed that there are people that they, if you're not, um, what's the best word? Like I advocate for shit that I'm sure you do too, like equal rights and all that. Mm -hmm. um, that's not good enough for certain people. And and if you're new, you could probably, I feel like it'd be real easy to kind of crumble under pressure of someone that you shouldn't even give a shit about in the first place because there, there's a, and there's not a lot of them. I mean, they're loud, but just because they're loud doesn't mean I've noticed, you know, mm -hmm. you take a step back and you talk with enough friends and people in the business that have been in long enough. You notice that they're in the minority, the loud ones um, that a lot of them want you to be um, uh, activists, like actual activists, too. 
basically always be thinking this way, always do this shit, always overreact. Those are my words. That's how I view those people. And I'm not picking one side. Like, it's not political or nothing, but on both sides of political parties, I think that applies to really any topic. Um, they're all, I think they're crazy motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> the, I'm specifically talking about radical people that think in binary terms because that's not life. No. And I got I got lost in that thinking, and I feel like a damn fool for that. But the thing is, is uh, you take a step back, and you realize all the big names like Lansdale, uh, Ronald Kelly, uh, Kathy Koja, all of them. Like they'll they'll talk about how they feel about stuff, but they're not going to get into little qualms and beefs and shit with someone that, in my opinion, doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. usually, someone on the street, a stranger, that's just saying all this crazy shit. Like there's a guy down. You could throw a rock and hit probably his. I don't know where he lives, but he he has to live close because he always has these cardboard signs that says uh, Biden kills vaginas. Weird shit like that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want a conversation with that guy. I want to drive past him. Um, Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about the types of people that I'm talking about on social media. Um, I'll stop my, my tangent now, but. I think what you brought up is worth noting because, again, if you're new, it's going to be real easy if you feel pressured to kind of go along with that crowd. And it's even easier to get lost in their mentality and to kind of lose sight of what's important. Why are you on social media? Make a few friends that that are like minded is my is my thought. Sure. Yeah. No, those are interesting and complicated problems that I've thought a lot about. Um, I guess a lot of the times I ask, like, what does it mean to have a progressive politics? Like, I I like to think I try my best. I aspire to be a progressive person and I fail regularly, as we all do. I have slippages. Yeah, I, I, I probably, you know, uh, everybody is fraught with contradictions and hypocrisy, and, and that is the nature of, of being human. But social media um, encourages us to brand ourselves and to codify ourselves in these really calcified, rigid ways that I just think are are really harmful. Because the moment you try to navigate the real world, you discover, as you said, things are often muddier than that and, and more porous. It's nuanced. And, and nuanced, yeah, and and and, and, yeah. and and also like, so you're talking about um, this this person with the sign on the side of the road, or or and, and as someone who might have like crazy reactionary views on social media. Often these people are are quite literally operating within a different reality, which is a yeah. scary concept. Like they are living in a in a curated um, reality that is fundamentally at odds like i i find it hard if you can't have a starting point like can we both agree that gravity exists it's like where do you go you know sometimes just the baseline like can you can we acknowledge that like the, the 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 climate crisis is happening like look at the news like look at the fires like and and but some people are like no it's a hoax and it's like well where do we even start if we can't yeah. just like agree on the reality uh it's um yeah, it, it's 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 a weird thing. Um, and, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up social media and the Internet or that we brought it up together. Peel Back and See, I feel like, is my most contemporary book. Um, 
Shelter for the Damned is very much set within the suburbs that I remember from my youth, and it sounds like would have been close to the suburbs you remember from your youth. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. It's it's a time before a lot of this stuff, and then Darkest <laughs> Hours is um, it's it's kind of steeped in genre homage. Um, it's it's a personal book too, but it's 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 sort of entrenched, especially in the golden age of horror of the seventies and eighties, with some of the filmmakers you're talking about: Craven, Romero, Hooper, Argento, Carpenter, it's, and and heavy metal. It's just like soaked up in in my obsession with that stuff. I just um, got an art boner. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I'm, I'm happy to oblige. Um, yeah, anytime. Uh, yeah, but peel back and see is like it's more directly concerned with contemporary reality. There's a Twitter horror story in there called at Gorgoyama 2013. Um, there are wait, stories. Wait, 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 you can't move past that. Okay. What? <laughs> that title, that, that deserves a little explanation. I'm so intrigued. It was a, it was a fusion of um, several different uh, language terms for demon. Um, which, Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it was Japanese and Greek that that I ended up going with. I was I was kind of playing around with language generators and stuff, but it's this Twitter user who um, comes across as extraordinarily kind and warm um, and supportive of the struggling musician at the center of the story. But as things go along and Twitter verges into the real world shit gets dark and scary so that's um that's my twitter horror story in peel back and see there i want i want you to describe that the entire like what the general concept for that book is in a minute but uh let's see i was reading this thing where uh this article on how we develop and obviously not every single person but how we develop this persona this version of ourselves whether we like it or not because let's face it, I can't imagine everyone likes being extreme. There's a lot of it. Um, it could some of it could be shock value, but you're presenting to strangers. This is who I am. So there's two of us, you know, man. Like I'm I'm this way in person, but and and you seem to be this way in person too. But for a lot of people, they have a digital profile if you will for lack of a better word and they got their real version wouldn't that be interesting if they met each other if they would even like each other (laughs) there's a horror story yeah yeah oh wow that's fascinating yeah i mean i think we all obviously like we do curate our our online personas we just we decide what to tweet what to share on instagram um, we, we filter our photographs, um, we, you know, what, what to engage with all of these things work toward shaping an identity that again, I think is just inevitably at odds with anything that approximates like material reality. Just, you try to navigate the world the way you navigate social media. Good luck. I mean, and I, I, for me, I, 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 God, you're getting me going on rants here, but I often say like the biggest threats to progressive politics. And I know people sometimes take odds with this and they say that there's a lot of positive potential in social media. I am a pessimist and I am uh, sometimes very cynical, so I'm sorry, but I think the two biggest threats to progressive politics 
are the state of ecological catastrophe in the world, the climate emergency, and social media. I do think those are the two biggest threats we face. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Um, and and so a lot of my terror around the internet and the way my anxiety manifests in my engagement with the internet, like I said, it's all bound up in the stuff I've been writing recently, for better or worse. So, can't wait, man. So let's dive into peel back and see. Tell us what that exactly is about, and maybe if you can dive into a story or two. Sure. Yeah. So Peel Back and See is a collection of short stories written primarily between the years 2018 and 2021, which, as um, it happens, were the most taxing, transformative um, and and honestly traumatic years of my life. Um, I started going gray in my beard and my hair in the the years that I wrote this book. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. so yeah, it's a, it's a, I feel like all the stories are thematically connected. I wrote all of them um, after finishing my master's, almost all of them. There are a couple exceptions. Um, and I, I started working an office job for a while. Um, I had a series of kind of personal and familial and other kinds of traumas and events that came up that I think found their way into the book. Um, I guess what what I've been describing as the spine of the book are three stories that occur at the beginning, roughly the middle, I guess middle leaning toward end, and the end. Um, the first story is called Havoc, the middle story is called Deprimer, and the final story is called Fade to White. And these are all stories that are engaging in a very raw uh, and visceral way with um, depression, the experience of depression. And I think a lot of the book sees me as a writer um, grappling with depression, which which uh, often rendered me unable to write and trying to write through that experience. So there was this kind of metacognitive thing going on where I was trying to process the experience and the inertia of depression through writing, um, which became um, hopefully, hopefully compelling for readers. It was, it was unusual for me. I had never done anything like that. So, like I said, I just think, um, this book, I, I kind of pushed myself into a more personal place than I ever had before. Um, all of my books are very personal, but this one was like less guarded by genre in a way. It's, it's like, it's more just kind of naked fiction, um, about my pain, um, in a sense. You're just, you blend in anything and everything into it sounds like yeah yeah i mean and the stories are still like they're filled with you know cosmic horror and monsters and and all the genre stuff that i love a lot of um you know i guess you could say like pulpy imagery and stuff like that i love that stuff but um yeah i mean the 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 first story havoc is uh actually yeah the first story havoc and the last story fade to white were written most recently actually quite close to the publication they're written during pandemic lockdown um and they depict characters grappling with trauma and with um intense chronic depression and addiction who are sort of lost in their screens and they're experiencing this kind of dissolution of identity um so I, I just wanted to like look seriously at some of these things and try to get close to them and not shy away, which was scary for me as a writer. Um, and hopefully readers respond to it, but it was like something I needed to do. 
It's therapeutic. That sounds, I mean, ah, I think that'll sell itself, man, uh, when potential readers hear that. So, talking to you for this long, man, and then just kind of following you on social media, um, some people talk like you, text-based only, uh, with your vocabulary and whatnot, um, and they don't really speak like that. But you do, and that's not a knock. So I'm curious, like, how important words are for you? Obviously, every writer, they're important, but I kind of want to hear how you describe it, how how important words are to you and why. Oh, interesting. Well, I guess language seems to be the fundamental way we communicate with each other. Um, seems to be the way I have found myself best able to communicate uh, like I said, I tried my hand at drawing for a while. <clears throat> I don't think I was particularly good at it. Um, I probably wasn't terrible, but um, not especially talented. Um, and I don't know. I guess I I just ha- always looked for escape hatches. So my escape hatches were like music, movies, and books, especially books. Lots and lots and lots of books. Um, so... I don't know. Reading and writing are like lifelines for me. So I guess if I um, if I speak a certain way, maybe it's just I don't know. Um, Probably spent too much time in academia, too much time in classrooms. So I hope it uh, doesn't come across badly. But uh, no, 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 no. that I wasn't saying a derogatory way. It does come across like an academia type way. Another which reminds me of a recent guest we had, John Langan. Um, Both Mm -hmm. nice. You both are nice guys. uh, So. Thanks. I don't really, I don't really give a shit about the academia versus like the hard knocks camps, stuff like that. It doesn't affect me. I don't really give a <laughs> shit about it. Um, Cause you know what, man, at the end of the day, you get one life. I hope, I think. And uh, yeah. I mean, like I'd rather waste that energy on trying to make my son laugh at how goofy his dad can be or not pissing my wife off. <laughs> I think you're doing it right, man. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. What I'm trying to do, I think I'm trying to do what probably what you are trying to do and what most people are trying to do is just trying to survive. Yeah. Um, right. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to live. Um, and uh, as it happens, the thing that I've clung to the longest and that I've held to the longest and that has stuck with me the longest is my writing. So um, and I've, I've basically just kind of stumbled my way from thing to thing. I barely graduated high school, graduated high school on a loophole, found my way into, uh, I guess, something that looked like a home in academia and undergrad. I think it's more complicated than that. Um, but I just discovered, you know, if I, I, I was very fortunate to get funding for my master's and my PhD. So I kind of look at it as I have a roof over my head and like a job for a few years that also affords me the time and space to read and write and teach, which I happen to love as well. So um, I don't know. It's working out so far. I think I'm I'm still here. So. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like you said, you are selling. These are your first three books, right? Yeah. Yeah. First three. Selling first three. Are they all through Journal Stone? Yeah, they are actually. So a great, great publisher to work with. Great people. So, yeah, that makes me off the bat want to ask why them. And a follow up question would be, did you pitch to a lot of other publishers or were they kind of like 
Man, it, they better not have been your first and you got a yes, because I'm going to be like, God damn it, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, uh, Shelter for the Damned took me a long time. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, there was one publisher who just sat with it for, I think, two years. They just sat with it. Um, and uh, eventually they gave me like a nice rejection. I was like, you could have sent that, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, time is funny. Yeah, exactly. So there, that was one of them. There was another publisher who sent me the nicest email I've ever gotten from a publisher about my work. It was a page long, just kind of like this wow. deconstruction of the novel and all the things they loved about it. But it ended by saying, we are full for this year, but next year we'd be interested in publishing it. Oh. Uh, next year came around and they had a whole new editorial staff who was not interested in horror anymore. So I was like, again, another year gone. Um, yeah. And then finally journal stone, I, I, I also suspect, and, and this is just inference, but I suspect some publishers might have been concerned with publishing a book that has like a teenage protagonist who's not particularly likable committing acts of violence. Um, and I think like the book doesn't, it doesn't affirm anything. It doesn't really like affirm a moral position because I'm not particularly interested in doing that in my fiction. And maybe that was of concern to some publishers, but that's speculation. In any event, Journal Stone is awesome and they gave it a home and I'm so, so thrilled that they did. So that's great. Yeah. You know what? It's so weird to say this. And I mean, I've only read it once. You've read it a shitload of times. So you got a little bit more insight with shelter than I do, but I'm kind of piggybacking off of an early comment. It does feel like, not feel like, there is ambiguity throughout your book, throughout the story. It's weird to say that because I feel like I know what happened. But then again, it's, you know what? It's like Paul Tremblay. It's exactly how I felt the first time I read his book, um, which that first book I read of him was, um, oh God, it's the collection that came out in 2019, mm-hmm. Growing Things. Mm. Growing things and other stories. Uh, just reading his stories, there it tells a linear li- uh, a linear storyline. But I mean, maybe it never happened, and I love that. An unreliable, unlikable character is my favorite because they're fucked up like all of us, and they're not pretending. The narrator is not pretending like you do that. You you do a, you're gonna get B. You could be the nicest damn guy in the whole world, but. Just because you are doesn't mean that that girl's going to give a fuck about you no matter what you do or whoever. I'm just throwing, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. throwing out one scenario out there. Um, or you could die, you know, you could die in a very fucked up way. I remember when I started writing um, with my, this was a short lived thing, but I was in a band with my, one of my best friends. Um, and him and I were talking about. We would just have long walks, talk about, and it'd be in Plymouth too, often on the uh, waterfront. It's beautiful there, summertime. And he, at one point, he would, I, I believe it was him that said something about not trying to push an unlikable character. But I always thought about later on in life, like Devil's Rejects. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. There ain't a whole lot of likable characters in that. No, and I mean, Rob Zombie is a big influence of mine. Oh, yeah, yeah, you said that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I love his films. Devil's Rejects is a great example because this is a film that um, 
kind of unilateralizes uh, just this kind of moral vacuum, both the like the police that, that are pursuing the Firefly family and the Firefly family. It's just um, and the bounty hunter. Ken but yeah, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just cruelty across the board and moral corruption. Um, and I feel like that film, um, I, I just actually did an interview about Rob Zombie the other day, and we talked a lot about that center. You remember the motel scene when they capture the family in the hotel room? That's one of the most grueling sequences I've ever seen in a film. It, it's so long. Yeah. Um, it's just, um, yeah, Rob Zombie's worldview um, that he conveys in his films, I really connect with um, and always have. So he's a he's a major reference point and, and hero of mine, too, for sure. Yeah, and he focuses on the 70s because that's when he grew up. And uh, you know what? You know, I feel like maybe he wasn't because of who he was working with and for, but Michael Berryman's character, he's just kind of, he's playing, he's a smart guy um, in real life, but he's, this is a weird comparison, but like Marilyn Monroe, the world sees him or her in this certain light and they just kind of play it out for the cameras, but he, He's like a lovable, goofy bastard in Devil's Rejects. I think he was probably a good... His character was a good person. Just works for an asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what does he say? He's like, are you saying I look like someone who fucks chickens? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> God, that scene... And that scene is nothing... That scene, like, serves no narrative function. Like, it has nothing funny. to do with the plot. It's just... Yeah, it's just a funny scene with these weird characters um yeah i love that scene the first one that uh house of a thousand corpses man that that fucked my head up for a while <laughs> in the best of ways i mean yeah. that was as dark as hell that was like one of his darkest things i mean devil's rejects is brutal it's gory it's got a lot of um plays off of a lot of brutal true crime in america but or wherever um, but still, House of a Thousand Corpses, something about it is super gritty. It feels like a super gritty independent horror film. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's crazy that it was made within the studio system. Well, it started with Universal, and then he was dropped by Universal, and then picked up by another studio, and then dropped by them, and then eventually ended up at Lionsgate. And he was, I guess, shooting stuff on his camcorder between studio stays, which he stitches into the movie. So it has this, like, yeah, you're right. It has, like, this kind of rough, truly it's gorilla style. Hell yeah. Yeah, I love House of a Thousand Corps. That movie's so alive in, in yeah. a way that a lot of movies aren't. You're just like, this is, this is, you know, such a strong point of view. Uh, yeah, I love Rob Zombie. He's, uh, he's definitely one of the rare ones. Yeah, and the best part, Rain Wilson's in it. Pre-Glight. Oh. That's right. Is that pre-Dwight? I can't remember. I'm not going to look it up, but I think it's pre-Dwight. Well, they originally finished shooting in like the late 90s or 2000. And then oh, it it's definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It came out in 2003, but um, they finished shooting like a while before that. While we're talking about Rob Zombie, I'd like to know your take about what are your hopes, expectations, and whatever else for uh, his uh, monsters, uh, Rob Zombie's take on the monsters. I I'm I have high hopes. I mean, he um, he's very yeah. He's so outspoken about his like this is going to be a very personal movie. He's he's obsessed with the monsters and grew up with it. And there's such there's a good actually, show. 
Yeah, of course. It, yeah, absolutely. Um, there was there's an old Howard Stern interview, I think it was, where they just gave him like an impromptu Munsters trivia challenge and he knew everything right away. So, um, yeah, Rob Zombie's the guy to do it. Um, I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm always excited for new Rob Zombie, whatever it is. Speaking of social media, going back to that, which ties in with this question, um, I'm sure you've seen it, too, was uh, a lot of people have opinions on him casting his wife a lot. And you know what? Uh, if my wife, if I was in his shoes and my wife was an actor, she wanted to do it, and I thought she was good, I don't give a fuck what anyone else thought. That guy is doing, he's living his dream. He's with oh, yeah. the woman he loves. You know what? Who the fuck are all these people that go around saying, like, making these bold statements like they know the fucking guy? I'm, I'm being a little aggressive about this because it pisses me off. Oh, for sure. I feel you. Yeah, no, totally. It pisses yeah. me off when strangers have such bold claims. Like, I saw this shit go down with Joe R. Lansdale, man, where there's motherfuckers telling this guy about how he should use his money and how it's fucked up, how he's going to give it to his kids. Are you shitting me? This dude. Wow. Joe is, Joe is so nice. He is have so some nice. respect, yeah. Say, that to his, say it to his face. You'll get your ass beat. Wow. Yeah. No, that's um, that's unreal. Yeah, I do. I don't really get the complaints with Sharon Moon Zombie either. I think she's always well cast and really good. Like Lords of Salem, especially she kills it. That's a great performance. Um, I've liked her and everything. And here's the thing. We haven't even seen the, the trailer. How do you know how she's going to be? I know. I know. I love that she's in all of his movies. And I love that he has like this. um family that he works with that you're like oh yeah this person was in all of his other films um jeff daniel phillips and uh you know sid haig of course and uh yeah i love that bill mosley yeah ken foray like he he always is is working with the same people malcolm mcdowell Uh, there's so many examples right so that's what really got me into like not really got me into it but that's what i really loved about adam sandler movies is that Mm -hmm. he had he had a lot of the same people too. Martin Scorsese does that too. I mean, in not actors, but he always used the Rolling Stones. It seems like in his soundtrack. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. If no. you don't like, here's the weird thing. It's not social media, but it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? It is uh, blown up. I'm trying to think. What's the word? It's it, it's uh over-exaggerated, I guess, because of social media, is uh, people have an opinion about everything. I mean, like, why does it matter? Why can't you just, like, kind of see something and scroll on? That's the that's the habit I, I broke out of recently. And I'm looking back at myself, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. So much of that. Yeah, I know. I, 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 a lot, I actually delete a lot of tweets. I'm like, do I really want to do this on Twitter? Why did I tweet that? Why did I feel the compulsion to fucking tweet that thought? And you're right. Like in, in the real world, if everyone was always running their mouth all the time, like they do on Twitter, it would just be, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Like yeah. Twitter is often just like this cacophony of screaming. And you're like, why, <laughs> what is this? What is this monstrosity? We, yeah. Um, and everyone's always saying good job and this and that, and I'm all for boosting people up. But like, hell yeah, I often wonder: Do these people actually give a fuck, or this is this some? And I'm not trying to come off. I'm not. I'm not talking shit about any individual, but just like, like me and my wife, we're on a pig. We have a mini pig. We mm-hmm. love her. She's four, and uh, oh. we're we're on a 
different Facebook groups for pig communities. It's a weird thing to say pig community, but uh, there's a horror story there somewhere. But it could be about pigs. It could be about anything. <laughs> People are always going to get mad, and it, it just oh. – I don't. I don't really know what the point for this is, but it just it, it, it's interesting to see how we are, and it makes me wonder if down the line, after we've kind of went through our infancy stage with social media and uh, uh, intimate connectivity, are we going to look back and say, "Man, our species is dumb as hell." <laughs> I mean, we definitely are. I hope. <laughs> I hope a lot of, um, yeah, we are. We are profoundly stupid species, and and I think <laughs> it's also just tied to our um, fixation on power. Just so what you're talking about in these pig Facebook groups. This is like a really interesting truth and reality on social media. I've also seen this in like vegan and vegetarian groups. Like I was yeah. a part of the Calgary vegan and vegetarian group, and there are a lot of like you know, really well-intentioned people who will come in and be like, hey, I'm just like, I'm trying to go vegetarian or trying to go vegan. And within a day, everyone's like shaming them and and um, belittling them and uh, for not doing it right. You're like, you're not a real vegan if, or if you're vegetarian, it's not enough, whatever. Like, this is just an example, but it's just interesting to see how we have this propensity to establish power structures everywhere and i find that intensely disturbing and this informs a lot of my fiction because um i don't know i just i yeah that that, that's a frightening fundamental trait that we have as human beings i think um this constant like wrestling for power and i think it's real yeah i don't know if that ever goes away i don't know social media certainly doesn't help i don't think it will I was looking up what comes after the internet, and there's this thing, and it was coined in the early 90s, <clears throat> fiction. Because fiction always gets it right for reality, or maybe reality bases off of that. I don't know, but um, it's called, what was the word? Um, something first, metaverse, or hmm, I think it was the metaverse. But basically, think uh, Ready Player One, where it's it's not fueled by or powered by the internet it's powered by and this is a big it would take i would imagine decades but pro i would feel like it would probably be in our lifetime when we're older men it's this thing where it would have to be big tech companies talking to each other so you can have devices of different brands and and devices of whatever all talk to each other but basically it's you in a a fake reality um an augmented reality uh, the matrix or whatever um it just that scares me that scares me a whole lot because i mean that seems like eventually we're going to do that um i think we're kind of testing the boundaries to the point where we're going to end up killing ourselves one day yeah absolutely um, I, I i mean like look at the shit we do we're trying to bring back willie uh, some scientists are trying to bring back woolly mammoths like, have you not seen Jurassic Park? You dumb bastard. <laughs> and yeah. and what are you gonna feed it? Like they aren't they aren't around for a reason anymore. Like they're built for a whole different, a literally a different environment. Oxygen levels were different. Um, I can't go into anything deeper than that because I'm not smart enough to know that shit. But like everything was so different back then. We're talking, I think. I want to say millions of years. I can be way off base, but it was a very long time ago. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know how people would react uh, here in Fredericton just seeing a woolly mammoth uh, <laughs> walking in the superstore parking lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, uh, and it's cool. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Jurassic Park or like Frankenstein. We have a lot of great narratives about yes. this. Um, and I, th- I think Frankenstein is not like, I mean, it's a it's a novel that's entrenched in romanticism, which was kind of an anti-industrialism thing. And I mm. think that can be misread as anti-science. It's not anti-science. It's anti-industrial capitalism gone rampant um, to some extent, or it can be read that way. Um, and that was certainly the impetus of romanticism in many ways. How's, um, it, um, how's the anti-industrial? You talking about the industrial revolution? Yeah, yeah. So I guess romanticism is is entrenched in that, and Frankenstein kind of emerges out of that movement. Um, so this belief that there is a kind of there is a, a set of idyllic possibilities before industrialism, and that um, there is virtue in innocence and in childhood and in art, um, not in this gray behemoth of industrialism. So, oh, industrialism being just like, uh, you know, machinery, um, yeah. everything being big, taking over human, uh, it assisting humans or, or replacing humans. Yeah, machine, yeah, machine production, I guess. Um, so new forms of um, in, industrial production, really. Oh, that's really smart. I never thought of it like that. Um, one book I want to mention that does tackle a lot of these, and just it's if you haven't, or listeners, if you haven't read this, Eric LaRocca's Things Have Gone Worse Since We Last Spoke. It has sold over 25,000 copies for a reason. I mean, I'm not pulling that number on my ass. Um, that's the last number I saw him update uh, publicly. Okay. Um, have you read that? I have not, but I, I, it's very high on my queue. I don't need to put you on the spot. I mean, there's so many books to read. I know, yeah, I, but Eric is awesome. I really like Eric. I respect him a great deal. I, he's I, awesome, yeah. Yeah, he's doing huge things, and I'm so happy for him. It's just so cool to see. So, yeah. I bring it up because um, it's written in the year two. It's based in the year 2000. It's mm. These two two lesbians talking. I say lesbians because it's very – I just got to, you know, I don't know, white guy talking about that. So I'll specifically say why I brought up. And I'm not being sarcastic when I say that. Because um, even Eric got accused of being a straight white guy writing lesbians. They're, it's important in the beginning of it because they meet in an LGBTQ chat room. Um, and that's really where everything seems normal. With It starts out with this uh, apple peeler. And Eric made that interesting. So that's how the relationship builds off of each other. Um, it's... Without spoiling anything, it's about people testing boundaries via social media, not really trying to be malicious, but they're trying to push and see how far they can go. And if it goes that far, let's see how much further I can go until didn't think they'd do that. Or that's that's a real possibility. It's not just like, a let's see if it works. Um, so, again, no spoilers, but. Yeah, it kind of it, it it reflects humans at their ugliest, and it takes place in two thousand. That was a crazy time for the internet. It's it was like the wild wild west. Um, Fifteen years ago, ten years ago, I wouldn't really want to buy anything online. Nowadays, you don't even think about it. But, yeah, 
Remember how many sites there were? And I don't know about you, but I, I didn't trust a lot of them. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, oh, that that book just sounds very much like my shit. I need, to, I definitely need to read it. Um, and I've been meaning to. So, yeah, it sounds incredible. I'll just say, like, I got a pile of books right now. Um, Josh Mallerman's School in the Cape that comes out in December. Phil Fricassi's Boys in the Valley comes out the end of this month. City of Fire, Don Winslow comes out next year. Burner by Robert Ford, REO. Then we got a classic, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. I think that's how I say. Joy Lane by Stephen King. Like, these are books I want to read right now. But then I got other books about the Korean War for research for this book I'm writing. And then there's a bookshelf. Like, man, there's so many books I want to read. I know you do, too. And we're not even talking about digital copies or audio books. Yeah. We're, we're never even going to read, like, a, a fifth of the amount that we want to end up reading. I know. Uh, yeah. And the PhD is getting in the way too of reading. <laughs> so fucking education. I know, right? Yeah. So I'm doing. Um, turns out there's a lot of required reading in a, uh, in a PhD, but uh, yeah, I, I'm actually reading a book right now called The Unnameable by uh, by Beckett by Samuel Beckett that I kind of wish I had read before writing Shelter for the Damned. I don't think Beckett was. I mean, I shouldn't assume, but I don't imagine he was thinking about genre horror when he wrote this book but um he deals with the concept of, of being a kind of consciousness suspended in space um in in ways that are genuinely for me like deeply distressing uh that's for the art of failure course actually so i'm so glad i got to pick this book up it's mind-boggling yeah i bet you wouldn't not knocking you and this is my assumption that you won't have read that if you weren't in that course. I might not have. No, I mean, I. That sounds read... really helpful. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've read like some of Beckett's plays, but I don't know. I never really sought out his fiction for whatever reason. And this is the third part of what's called, I think it's like a thematic trilogy. Um, and so I maybe, you know, it's likelier that I would have read the first book in the trilogy and then maybe moved on to something else because I'm always trying to take little bites of as many bibliographies as I can. So, Man, I still haven't finished the Dark Tower series. I stopped after four. And, you know, I, I won't get into why beyond the fact that, like, it was an excellent book, but it wasn't for me. And I hate that because I know how many people love it. Brennan can't stop talking about it when we talk about it, mm. that series. And I can see why. It, it has all the merits in the world, but it's always stuck with me. But my whole point of bringing that up was I still got, what, five books left? Oh. Yeah, you have. God, I think. Like a, like over a million words. It's <laughs> a lot of words in any of that. Four or five books. Many, many words. Yeah, I I mean, I, I really like the Dark Tower books. And I think some of the entries are, like, uh, pretty damn close to perfect. But in terms of um, my favorites from King, it's not my favorite. Um I don't go to King for his uh, fantasy stuff as much as I go to it for the more transgressive horror stuff. I think that's my 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 favorite mode that he works with. I mean, I love King in general, but The Dark Tower is not my personal favorite, so not any knock against it. It's still yeah. very good. Yeah. What about Love in 2263? You read that? Yeah, fantastic novel. That, that's my favorite book by him. 
Good I like choice. it more than I like it more than it because uh, my dad and I he got my love for history falls in with him and um, you're you're just this I, I wanted to ask this earlier you're from Canada right yeah yeah I was born in Alberta I'm living okay. in Fredericton New Brunswick now gotcha um, so I'm originally from Massachusetts um, so I'm a little biased when it comes to JFK uh, he was an Irish boy from. Um, lived in the Cape and my grandparents retired there. So I've been going to the Cape Cod my whole life. Um, totally different experience from him. Cause I saw the Kennedy compound. And I'm like, I knew there was rich people in the, in the Cape Cod. That's like American royalty. Like you don't see that every day. At least I don't, um, <laughs> being a middle-class guy, I don't see that shit every day or really ever, but mm-hmm. give mix King with JFK and an alternate reality. I mean, that shit's scary. But then, this is before the uh, pandemic. I'm like, well, what would be scarier? The thing where if JFK survived and that was the world, or like, what's happening now? I don't know. They're both fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, what a thought. Yeah, that's that's um that's, that's a fantastic novel and so well researched. Um, yeah. You can tell it was just uh, a massive undertaking, and he, he really pulls it off. The scope of the book is pretty incredible. Yeah, he said that there was a pile of books stacked as tall as him. He's a tall guy. And um, I love how he brings us back to Derry and the fact of how it felt like we were really in those various parts like of Maine and, and Texas. Um, you know, man, I got one more question before we start wrapping up. And I meant to talk about this way earlier, but uh, YA, Shelter for the Dam, it's um, it's YA. You've described this at uh, many times here today. Uh, we had Jeremy Robert Johnson on earlier this week, and uh, he was talking about YA too. It's a weird one. And Brennan brought up something that I'm like, that's fucked up, but I think you're right. Uh, YA to some people... I don't I don't know what the definition is. I've heard so many different answers. But why to some people is just it's about young people of a certain age group going through an experience. Um, and often it's told from talking about your past. Um, he, Brandon said the girl next door could technically be one. And I'm like, that's fucked up. Wow. Because we're talking about extreme reactions. Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door does fit that specific criteria. Oh, man. What a... I've never, <laughs> never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and Shelter for the Damned, I wouldn't think of conventionally as like a YA novel. It, it's about young adult protagonists. Um, I'd say it's like kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. I guess you'd call it an adult novel. I mean, I'd be happy if teenagers picked it up. I, I picked up um, some pretty dark, dark stuff when I was a teenager and it got me engaged and interested in, in exploring other kinds of fiction. So, but yeah, I don't know how it's defined really. Um, and my agent is actually like, uh, really, she's an expert in YA and really knows that world. I don't know a lot about it. I guess the last Koja novel I read, um, I think was billed as a YA novel. I, I it's still, Koja, it still has her voice and her point of view. Um, the characters were younger, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't know if like YA markets are dictated by 
content? Like, are they censored according? Because if that's the case, then Shelter for the Damned would not meet the criteria. There's uh, an abundant use of the word fuck. There's a lot of killing and brutal violence and domestic abuse. I don't know. Or are those things in YA too? I don't know. I don't know what it is really. I don't know, man, because from what I haven't read the book yet, it sounds amazing, but I hear Adam Caesar's uh, corner, the uh, clown in the cornfield kind of like does all that shit, cusses a lot, has a lot of brutal killings, has teenagers in it, but yeah, I'm not too sure, man. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people about this. No damn clue. I don't think anyone knows what the definition is. It's like asking a guy how a girl works. Like, yeah, you can be, a, you can have a good relationship, but like, fuck if I know. That's just, <laughs> that's just this guy's opinion. I'm not claiming to know jack shit about anything. <laughs> Me neither. I do. I also do not know jack shit about anything. I'm just, uh, I'm just fumbling my way through. I think that's it, man. That's a great way to end that. Basically, just fake it till you make it, baby. So I'd love to know, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading that Beckett novel, The Unnameable. Um, and I'm reading a book called Inside Story by Dara Marks. Inside Story, the transformational arc. So it's a kind of study of the narratological structure of screenplays. Um she argues for the foundation of story being theme. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I've got some philosophical qualms, but I think in terms of uh, familiarizing myself with the structure of screenplays and uh, even of story, it's helpful. I like reading books about story, even if I don't um, hang on to everything I read. Um, and then I'm also reading uh arthur schopenhauer's the world as will and representation weirdly enough that's my leisure reading right now it's this uh, classic of pessimistic philosophy so i'm finding comfort in that that's awesome uh currently i'm finishing this up I've got 35 minutes left of robert morasco's burnt offerings it's uh it, you know we're gonna cover that on our other show me brennan uh kevin kelly to uh, unburying the dead cover classic car paperbacks this is the one that we're gonna be doing with chad lutsky gonna record that uh, in a week from from this recording um that show has been on hiatus for a little while just a lot of shit going down nothing bad just uh life mm-hmm. as as you know as one does um yeah at, but you know what? I don't know if you've read this, but man, it's it's a good book. But if you're expecting a lot of crazy shit to happen, that ain't it, this ain't psycho. Um, okay. It's slow paced. It's not slow paced like a house on a uh, house on haunted hill. Haunt no um, haunting on hill house. I mix those two up all the time. It's slow paced like that, where there's not a lot of boom, boom, boom. There's mm. a lot of uh, infer- inferences. There's also some pretty grotesque shit, but I like it. It's really well written. It's just full of dread. Um, mm. And if it was happening to me in real life, I, I don't know, man. I'd probably shit myself a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know. Yeah, that's a classic. I haven't got to it yet. It's uh, I've heard. I mean, I, yeah, it, it is. It is a classic. The reputation precedes it. But I, I don't know. It's just, again, so many books, so little time. Yeah, man, you know, uh, anyone that says, you haven't read that yet, fuck off. Like, the, you know how many <laughs> things there are? That is sort of, that is just uh, rude. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, let's... Next book, 
The next book I'm gonna be yeah for real. Uh, The next book I'm reading is She Rides Shotgun, um, by Jordan Harper. Um, Essay Cosby said that's a book that without that there's no Blacktop Wasteland. I read Blacktop Wasteland last year and I want to read what inspired that. Um, The book that I just got, I'm bragging. Uh, maybe that's in poor taste, but I mean, I'm also excited because I love this guy. Jarrah Lansdale, new book. Uh, oh, amazing. Born for Trouble. It's uh, up, it's stories about Happy Leonard. It comes out next March. Oh, boy, I that up. Very unprofessional. Look, look at what happens when I've got Brian. I just run him off. Um, <laughs> comes out March 21st, 2022. But um, Joe's awesome. I read his book that came out with Death Set Press last, uh, actually this year. It was a chapbook called um, <coughs> Hungry Snow. And it's just, hey, man, to, you want to you wanna learn a thing or two from writing from someone that's done it for decades. Like, he's one of them. Him, Brian, I, three guys on the list off the top of my head. Him, Keen, and uh, Ron Kelly. Like, I read their stuff, and I go, man, Give me just one percent of that talent, because yeah. the the way they string certain words together, it seems simple on the surface, but it's not. Yeah, it's like I, an arch. It's an architect, you know. You can understand the elements once it's explained to you, but that shit takes time. For sure, the Night Runners is one of my favorites. The Lansdale novel, The Night Runners, like mm-hmm. an early kind of splatter punky book so well written yes he's uh yeah he's, he's brilliant love joe lansdale he's the one that i adopted the attitude of i'm not a horror writer i'm just a writer um because i don't want to get pigeonholed too man i'm in the middle of writing a a young i guess it'd be described as a ya sci-fi fantasy but i'm also writing a uh this book basically my social commentary on social media which is why i'm so passionate about it because i got a lot of mixed feelings mm. and uh I think that social media is a great tool, but it's fucked up, too, if you use it the wrong way. And a lot of people do. But I'm not trying to preach about that. So, listeners, if you want to check out some reviews, articles from previous guests, go to deadheadspace.com. Um, Mike, where can people follow you? Uh, I've got a website, MikeThornWrites.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is MikeThornWrites. Same handle on Instagram. I'm floating around on Facebook and Goodreads and Letterboxd. I'm all over this weird place we call the internet. Um, and I have my book here, Peel Back nice. and See, coming October 29th. That's available to pre-order through um, Journalstone, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the places you get books. So, Letterboxd. Letterbox is a cool website. Jed Shepard was the one that introduced me to that dude that did host. And he actually saw it just today. Him and Rob Savage, they did host. Uh, they came out with, they're coming out with this movie called Dashcam. It's found footage through Dashcam. That's so fucking smart. Like, I, I don't know if it's been done before, but like when I read that, the synopsis, I'm like, that's a hell of an idea. You cool. can see a lot. A lot of creepy shit. Like if you're in a car at night, like you might not catch it when you're driving, but like you look back at your footage, you might see some things. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's good. Th- those guys, they are studious when it comes to film. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you want to tell potential readers? Anything? Um, I 
guess those are the big things. Yeah, uh, my books, Peel Back and See, Shelter for the Damned, and Darkest Hours are all available. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, um, gave them my website and my Twitter. So do feel free to, to get in touch, reach out. Um, I'm always happy to connect with other uh, genre enthusiasts and readers and stuff like that. So, Very yeah. Good, man. My final thoughts are I appreciate you uh, for taking your time. I know we talked a while ago. A while. I can't talk at this hour. We talked a while ago about you coming on. So I'm glad that this has finally happened. Appreciate your patience and uh, shelter for the damn. It's a damn good book. Haha. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, it's, it, it's an excellent book. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the blur, the hype, it's real. And it has. Uh, the juice to back it up. That's not even a phrase. Ah, <laughs> it's a good book. Next episode, episode 124, is with the author of She Rides Shotgun. He was also a writer for the show Gotham, amongst other shows, Jordan Harper. They'll air next Monday. As always, listeners, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. <laughs> You are now leaving Deadhead Space.